0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Border Made Podcast. I have a guest on today that has been inspiring me for a long time. Um, he didn't know it, but his brand's... Uh, have really made waves across a number of industries. Um, Justin Gilbert founded uh, Harmless Harvest, which is a coconut water brand that I'm sure you are very familiar with in 2010. He is still a chairman of the company. He also launched a brand called Bravo Sierra, which is a really, really cool, uh, I guess it's, I would call it like a men's grooming brand that is based all around military. Um And I'll let him tell the story about it. I love the brand. I was introduced to Bravo Sierra right when they launched. It's probably also got my favorite crew neck sweatshirt, period. I wear that crew neck sweatshirt all the time in the gym, kicking around at home. Um, It's just like an amazing sweatshirt. And then most recently in 2020, um, launched a great snack brand called Good Fish, which utilizes salmon skin and turns them into chips uh they're delicious they're truly delicious and I, I again i'm gonna let justin tell us a little bit about how he came to that but i'm imagining because i'm in the seafood game that these fishermen take the skins off of the salmon potentially to pack the salmon to can salmon and then they don't have anything to do with the skins is that was that what it is
1: it's a byproduct that's right it's it's a, the trash stream if you want to call it that way but it's gold
0: yeah. It's incredible. So Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, man. Really appreciate the time.
0: So born or made is a podcast that I've been doing for about a year now, uh, where I get people like you that have really inspired me, um, over the years to be a better version of myself. And and the idea of the podcast is to really understand this idea of nature nurture, whether you were born with some sort of skill set that's gotten you to where you are today, um, that you just that just drove you um, sort of intuitively, or if you were made over time, consciously made over time to get to where you are. Um, we get there through your story. So I'd love to learn about you from is way back. Uh, I know that you were you were born and raised in France. Um, Gilbert is a pretty French last name. Uh, I, I'd love to, I'd love you to start there and, uh, and tell us how you ended up where you are today, man.
1: Well, okay. Um, and, and, uh, I'll take this as a therapy session as well. I'll see if there's anything I learned yeah, from myself totally. through this nature process. Yeah. My, I was born in Paris, um, uh, in a, in the mid seventies. Um, and, uh, the product of the sixties, I say my parents met in the late sixties in LA. My dad was a a teacher at UCLA, French, French doctor teaching at UCLA. And my mom that year was the the cover model of sports illustrated swimsuit. So she was the 1969 swimsuit sports illustrated model. So they were, they were just hopping, you know, he was a hot French doctor. And I guess she was a hot American model. Um, and they met, got married within months of meeting, which I'm not sure was the smartest idea because they got divorced later on. But, um, It was a very American household because my my mom didn't speak a word of French when she got to Paris Um, and a very unusual, I would say, set of cultures. On the one hand, a pretty, um, I would say, intellectual, very culture oriented uh, family on the French side that was very much not into business at all, Um, had uh, centuries of history um, in the country. Um, and had the typical French attitude of, you know, your your value is your social capital and your capability as an individual to think and belong to certain um, circles, intellectual circles, uh, businesses for, you know, the lesser folk. You know, it's if you're going to do something for money, then you're obviously, you know, a, a weakling. Um, and then on the other side, I had this American family, very, very different, with a self-made, very successful grandfather on, on the American side who... Came from nothing as a sharecropper in Michigan and, and grew a, a very substantial business over the decades and was the archetype of the American dream or the greatest generation, however you want to call it, and almost a John Wayne character in my life. So, two, two very different worlds that I kind of hopped back and forth in. And there you go for your nurture. I'm, I'm breeding two ends of the spectrum. And here I am wanting to be a performance artist and realizing that my performance is business. So I made, I made peace with it. My medium is business and my, uh, my work is about not a commentary on society, but a actual practical application on improving so our social fabric. That's amazing. Man.
0: I mean, so, so your mom's family, where, do, where were they from?
1: My grandfather's from Michigan and grandmother's from Chicago, but they, they moved to uh, Connecticut in the, uh, mid fifties, um, and established our roots in Greenwich, you know, a, a poor middle-class blue collar, you know, neighborhood. Now they, 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 they were in the Greenwich scene from the fifties until today. Um, very involved in the community. My grandfather built this business, uh, amazing business, um, on the tail of, of world war II. Um, he was a Navy Lieutenant and Um, started working with the military to distribute consumables um, overseas uh, in a lot of markets that needed products. Right.
0: So I just got to stop you there for a second. My grandfather was a Navy Lieutenant and did the exact same thing. But my grandfather tells the story where he was, he was an officer in the Navy and he, uh, after the war, the Navy was, had an enormous amount of surplus because the war was over. And there was just this, there was this warehouses and warehouses of surplus. So they filled all these, um, shipping containers with all this surplus and they opened it up to the Navy officers to purchase. And so my grandfather and all of his Navy buddies, probably your grandfather, uh, <laughs> bought all this stuff and sold it to the, sold it here in the States and also overseas. And that's how he got his his entrepreneurial. Uh, that, I mean, my grandfather was an entrepreneur as well, and that's how he got his entrepreneurial wings going. So, so that's so that's great. So, did you spend time in the states as well as a kid?
1: Yeah, I would I would spend every summer about two months a year. Um, I was in I was in the states, um, and then I was in my bizarre world where I went to a French school, but was part of the American Boy Scouts Troop One One Two, which is the American Boy Scouts of Paris. All all six of us learning how to make fires to get our merit badges in the courtyard of the U.S. Embassy. Um, so you can imagine the vibe was very unusual. Um, and I would go to Boy Scout camp. There wasn't any in, in Europe. So they would send us to these Marine Corps bases and we'd set up tents um, in Bavaria um, and hang out with all the um, all the soldiers.
0: And Are you an Eagle Scout?
1: I know, no, because no, I, I discovered uh, pot and chicks by the time I was, you know, first class Boy Scout and you know, the, 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 the motivation and commitment to get those extra merit badges really, really um, waned.
0: Shit the bucket as soon as you met the as soon as you met the green and the, and, the, and, and the ladies.
1: Yeah. Nirvana was really kicking. You know, it was 1992 and this was this was I was very much into grunge. I, I was convinced I was obviously an anarchist and, you know, the system needed to be broken. So, you know, those were not Boy Scout values for those couple of years of teenage uh, angst.
0: Back in those days, I mean, how did you think? Because I, I mean, you know, I'm also an entrepreneur and I was kind of thinking that way early on.
1: Yeah, I, I started as early as I can remember. I was for some reason hustling on some project. It always had some form of I think any passion or interest or hobby that I had had to turn into some initiative that was going to convince other people. And if they could compensate me for that, I would be, you know, happy about it. So I was really into fish as a kid. And so I decided I was going to produce this substantial magazine, um, which was basically Xeroxing five pages of, you know, doodles. Um, And I would sell yearly subscriptions, um, even though I only had an issue in hand. Um, So I I, I defrauded a lot of my family with that uh, first initiative. I was probably seven or eight kept the money, didn't necessarily ship out all the issues of that yearly subscription. That was probably my first, first project. And then I, I, you know, I had an investment fund when I was 14 with a grand total of maybe $500 that I pooled from all of my friends. And we were buying stock before there was an online trading, you know, capability through old school brokers and, and you know, trying to, you know, what people say buy the dip, we were doing that. We, we lost our shirt really quickly there too. I mean, it was all kinds of bullshit Uh, it's been going on forever. It still goes on. It's like every day it is a new idea project initiative. It's, I think, um, um, I don't know if it's business more than this desire, this burning need to execute on ideas.
0: I think that that is what, what distinguishes the doers from the speakers. You know, I was, I was speaking to this other guy about this idea that, you know, I remember as a kid, If two kids were going to get into a fight and you knew that they were going to get into a fight or, 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 you know, there was talk about a fight, they would just yell at each other. They would scream at each other. They'd get in each other's face and nobody would, nobody would do anything. But there was always that one kid that would like not talk, just punch. And like, I think that that is the entrepreneur is the one that just sort of kind of comes out of nowhere and just hits you and just is like, you know, like, what's the point of talking all the, all the nonsense, right? Like, let's just go out there and do it. That is the single
1: best analogy I've heard about being an entrepreneur. I love it. It really is because honestly, um, it, it it it's just very funny. I I the, the number of times I've been into situations where I could get into a physical argument, mostly with when I was younger. And I've always had this attitude of like, well, if I'm going to stand up and go see this guy or whatever, I'm going to, you're going to have to do something out of this. So I might as well just walk it, walk away, move on with my life, and not get into trouble. But the point is, you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's, it's the same as those morons that we probably all were, you know, before you jump in off a cliff, there's always that one guy, they call him the daredevil. I think he's just the only guy who's like, well, we're up here. Let's, we're going to do this. Right. We're not doing like a dance. Um, yes. I think that's the big, uh, the big difference. I've met brilliant people with really, really creative strategic capability, you name it, hardworking and they quit their corporate gigs to start that big ass company they've dreamed of doing their whole life and they just are terrified and they stay stuck for a year and then they go back to a company. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. They're amazing at what they do, but it, it frustrates me. And what I realize seems to be the easiest thing about the job is the hardest one for everyone else. Um, I'm not particularly smart or or, or useful, but I do have that quality that you mentioned, which is, let's just fucking do it. You know, let's just do it and figure it out. Uh, Yeah. And I don't know if that's nature or nurture. Uh, I think a lot of it is nurture. You know why? Um, It's the, and it's going to sound a little silly and cheesy, but as a French dude, you live in this world where nothing is really doable. And I don't want to, like, I'm not trying to complain. I'm just saying that's the culture. European culture is really, it's complicated. Everything's hard. Everything's difficult, challenging. You stay in your stasis. Even the social fabric of the country is very much stagnating. And then you come to the US and it's like, everyone's like, fuck it. I'm going to try something. I'll do it. And you're like, what? You're, you're, you can do it? You just get up and you do it? And nothing, and it happens? Well, yeah, you fail 99% of the time, but nobody gives a shit about you failing. So go for it. And I think that that's as if, as almost a foreigner looking into the US MO, which is unique. I don't know any other country like that. You know, even if I look at really high growth places with tons of entrepreneurs in Asia and Vietnam and China and so forth, you don't get that same vibe of like, you know, you just got to get up and do
0: it. Do you think it's the, it's the fear of failure for most people? I mean, do you think that's what it is? That that's what keeps people in their seat?
1: I think the fear of failure is, is the single block and then once you need to, you need to pop your cherry, man, you need to fail. You need to fuck it up hard, lose your shirt, have everybody, you know, point their finger and say, ha ha, you like a Simpsons episode and feel like shit. And then the next time you fail, it's going to feel a little less worse. And, and by the time you're my grand age of 43, um, you've realized that failure is the name of the game. It's your, this is your business. You're in the business of failure. And every 10 shots, one of them succeeds. So they're good. Uh, And the success beats off everything else. So I don't feel the failure anymore. That's, you become, you become desensitized. You don't fail less. You fail as much. You just don't, don't care about it. And you turn it into opportunity.
0: You know, I have a, I have a very similar mindset to you. I mean, I've never been, I don't know what it is. I mean, you say it's nurture. I actually think it's nature, man. Like I'm actually afraid of the other thing just given directives all day and not have, not, not have any freedom to, you know, like, I don't think I would thrive. I think I would fail miserably in those environments. You know, the last job I had was essentially running a restaurant for eight years for a guy who really just let me do whatever I wanted to do. He was just like, it's yours, man, go for it. And like, I think that's the only reason why I succeeded, you know, from 19 to 27. But when it was, you know, time to do my own thing, People would ask me if I was nervous or scared and, and there was like not a fucking scared bone in my body. Like it, it was like so I was so comfortable making those decisions.
1: We are both idiots with a lot of confidence.
0: Without a doubt, never the smartest guy at the table ever and tend to just keep my mouth shut and let the smart guys do the talking. Um, I'm good at convincing people to like sit at the table, but once they get there, I shut the fuck up. So, how long? How, when did you get to the states? What was that migration like?
1: Right after college, twenty-one. I'd, I'd done this internship with this this crazy dude, entrepreneur named Chris Birch. He's the guy who started, you know, Tory Birch with his wife, and he's a notorious guy, interesting character. And I spent a summer being his bitch, basically, as an intern. And he was the guy who was just literally putting me in all these meetings, looking at all these different startups and companies, and getting me excited. I'd stayed in Paris for my college because of a girlfriend. And then for some crazy reason, I went and became a banker at Goldman Sachs, thinking that was the most prestigious entry into the work world. I cannot stand finance, um, didn't really understand Wall Street, but got the gig because I was a good used car salesman and pitching myself. So I sold them, you know, a a cheap Hyundai, but told them it was a Ferrari and they, they hired me. I think I left after 90 days with them screaming that I was burning bridges and I didn't understand the, you know, whatever the opportunity I was missing out on the reason because it was dot-com one and all these people I was pitching IPOs to were a couple years older than me. And, and I was like, why, why am I telling them how to get public when I could do the same? This doesn't seem like rocket science. So I quit and started my first company got funded by Chris Birch and a bunch of other dudes. It was called So Funky. And it was a social media company, believe it or not, messaging system. It failed miserably. I burned through a lot of cash. I printed some really cool t-shirts. Uh, we had a ping pong table in our loft. So we, we made it. You know, in your 2021, 20, we'd go to the clubs and, you know, we were just living the life. So um, basically realized that I was able to convince a lot of people on a lot of things. But I, I knew jack about actually producing what I was promising. And I was depending on these a bunch of, you know, Ukrainian coders that I that brought over and um, we had good ideas. We just, uh, we're, I was way too young, uh, to be honest. So the funny part, talk about failure is that we went under. Interestingly, most of the founders of the company, my best buddies, all ended up creating these massive businesses. I mean, one of my buddies just closed a $200 million round on his tech company a couple months ago. Another one became a big fashion designer. It's like, it's, it's kind of funny. And more importantly, our investors, like no one blinked an eye. And I made them whole because one of my investors was Norwegian and was like, Hey, I've got this company called Foss. that makes water. And it's it's basically tap water in Norway. And I can get two bucks for every dollar I raise in the U.S. And we want to launch this, this water business. We think we can we can do this. And it was one of my investors, a young guy, and I'm like fuck it, yeah! I'm gonna go see my guys. So I brought all my investors into Voss, and then helped kind of deliver that US launch, and it became a huge hit. I didn't jack, I just, but I made a lot of money for a lot of people that lost money with me before, and that kind of started the whole process. That was like the beginning of this rolling development and understanding that there is no final moment in your career. You're constantly moving with a group, with a pod of people around your ecosystem. And that's how my businesses are built. My harmless investors, stakeholders, fellow entrepreneurs are in Bravo Sierra, are in Goodfish. This is the same crew, basically. And we're just spawning and kind of leveraging our experience.
0: I got to hear the story of Harmless and how you came up with that. Um, you know, when Coconut Water was like first came on the scene, I, it was like, I don't know, it had to be like the late 90s, right? Something like that, early 2000s coconut water came on the scene and then harmless came out of nowhere. And for whatever reason was the best tasting coconut water I'd ever had, especially the ones that were pink. I'd always look for the pink ones and it was just, it was just a better product. It was just a better product. And, uh, and so I, I really want to get the story of how that was, how you developed that brand.
1: I worked at L'Oreal for a few years. I quit because I realized I was not going to be, I was not going to be able to survive the corporate environment. Even though they kept promoting me, the more I, I bitched about my job, the more they gave me promotion. And I quit. I decided I was gonna. I was living in Delhi with this girlfriend who was a conflict reporter based in India, covering Afghanistan and all these like messed up countries. I was in this like weird space, like learning.
0: How did you end up in Delhi? Where did did Delhi come from?
1: I followed my girlfriend, this Colombian girlfriend who was like going into into war zones and she was based in in New Delhi. So I was like, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. So it was a pretty raw experience. And my buddy Douglas had quit his job and he was living in Brazil, kite surfing. And we bumped into each other when we were both back in France. And I went down to his mom's place in the countryside and we spent a week yapping. And at the end, we're like, who are we kidding? Like, we're too privileged, very educated, access to resources, networks, everything. And we're pretending to be these bohemian thinkers that are bitching about the whole system and kind of cruising on it. We're we're the ultimate phonies. Not only are we the ultimate phonies, but like we're a disgrace to ourselves. And we decided that 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 day, I remember, he was driving me back to the train station, and we decided, to say, okay, let's do something together. Let's find let's find a project. And and from there, that's that that was the the, the start of everything of harmless and good fish that started back in two thousand seven. And what we decided to do was say, okay, we have really 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 crazy access and understanding of consumer packaged goods, right? Our families, our education, our business experience. So this is going to be our medium. This is going to be our um, vehicle. What do we think we can do with that?
0: Where did the insane like knowledge and and access to CPG come from before harmless?
1: Douglas grew up in the shadow of Danon. his grandfather founded Danon, and his uncle was running it. So he'd grown in a CPG world. It was part of his life. He was going into, you know, convenience stores, checking out the brands since he was a kid. And my grandfather had built, um, this company that was a major distributor of Kellogg's Budweiser, Philip Morris, you name it in a number of countries, um, either through military exchanges or, or civilian distribution this is a massive business. This is you know, thousands and thousands of employees. And so I grew up, you know, with Mr. Peanut and Heinz being, you know, my presence for Christmas, getting all the swag because consumer, American consumer packaged goods were the vehicle of the American way. And he was a big, big part of that global expansion of U.S. brands abroad and the military as well. Um, I also... Ended up going to L'Oreal, spending four years running marketing for Garnier and for Maybelline makeup for eleven countries. Douglas was a banker at Lazard, focused on consumer goods, so retailers and consumer brands. And everybody we knew around us was from that industry. The logic for us was to say, well, we can burn a lot of bridges now, right? We 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 could use our, our we could burn off the credit card. We can use all the contacts, call up all the all the Rolodex, people and give it a shot. If we have a good idea, the idea was super simple. The idea was to say, we're going to figure out a way to win at the consumer game by making a better product than anything that's promised. So we're going to look at places where people are promising a lot of things. And our example was McDonald's, right? The ad, the 30-second ad of that juicy burger and the fact that I know, guaranteed as the audience, I know it's not going to look or taste like it looks, right? This is not true. So this built-in deception that was basically tacitly agreed upon between the advertiser and the consumer. We all agree it's not going to look that way. We all know this is not true. So... The idea we had was to say, we're going to actually deliver the promise. We're going to make the product that they are, other people are spending billions in, in promoting. We're going to consider the audience, the consumer, not as dumb. And the tacit agreement is going to be that we're going to actually give you the product and you're going to be like, oh shit, it actually can happen. We're going to use that force of actually delivering the product to demonstrate that you do that only if you treat the supply chain, if you have business practices that are focused on the making, not the marketing. So you put the, the money in making the stuff, not in pushing the stuff. You know, Rihanna's drinking Zico or whatever it was, Vita, Vita Coco for the billboard. And then she's caught by paparazzis drinking harmless. Why? Because it's just better. And that's the best advertising I get. So why did we do harmless and a good fish at the same time they, that the promise, the idea was, was just that. We looked at coconut water from a very cold, I wish I had a foundational legend, right? I wish I could tell you. Douglas and I were holding hands on the beach and the coconut fell from a tree and we drank it and we wanted to spread the love of coconut water to the world. But that's, that's, that's really not what happened. What happened is that we were looking at food and cosmetics and personal care um, as industries to, to kind of really make a difference in sensorial, right? You can really experience it right away. We saw Coke and Pepsi buying up the supply chain of, of the coconut water industry. So not just the brands, but the actual back end the industry. So we knew they were in it for a while and I know their M.O. I worked for L'Oreal for years, for years, right? So their, their goal was to educate the U.S. consumer on the benefits of coconut water as a whole and then fulfill that with a product. The beauty for them is that coconut water was a perfect new step from Gatorade and Powerade and, you know, so on uh, vitamin water and it was even cheaper to make because you're using trash. Basically coconut water from where they stood was a byproduct of the copra, the meat and oil industry of coconut. So they could just take that trash and package it and tell you it was the best thing uh, forever. We also knew the product tasted like shit. And we also, you know, when you try an actual coconut water, it tastes really good. And there's a reason why people across the world, it's one of the number one consumed products. So we saw all of these, this arbitrage opportunity to find the right source find, and and then figure out the technology and then deliver it that part i'm simplifying but that took three years and then we lost our shirt and then we had no more money and then we got fucked over by everybody and their mom and all over the world um and then we dealt with the chinese mob and
0: you got i got you got to tell me a chinese mob story it's you got to do it dude you got to do it
1: we're in a time Thailand was the game. By then we figured out that the source was in Thailand. The coconut we wanted was the specific varietal that has all of those top notes and that you mentioned that are so tasty to give that vanilla almond flowery flavor and profile to it. The problem was that most, a lot of the agriculture in Thailand is overseen by not the government, but the triads by, by Chinese um, mafia. I mean, you call it, we call it mafia here. I mean, they're, they're, they're just business people. The thing though that was interesting is once we got big in terms of consumption and we needed more and more inventory uh, we started popping up on the radar in terms of you know we're we're meaningful Um, today i mean we're very meaningful in thailand but this is probably seven or eight years ago and douglas and i were doing the rounds of some of the farms that we wanted to work with more importantly we were trying to get more inventory more coconuts and a lot of those coconuts were being exported to china we get there to meet a bunch of farmers And there's nobody. And I'm talking, we get there. We're in the middle of the sticks, right? This is not, you know, this is not beaches and music and full moon parties. This is muddy, backwater, uh, not sexy, no tourists, the real world, uh, Thailand. And we get there and there's just one dude sitting at a picnic table with a gun. And we're like, all right, this is an interesting set of circumstances uh, with no interpreter you know, speaking Thai and Chinese. We got our guy and the guy says, well, this this gentleman and there's no farmers, right? No one's around. This guy's basically telling us that you're not going to get any coconuts unless you deal with him directly. Now, now you deal with the big boss. You don't go through farmers and he tells you the price and the amount and you say yes.
0: And that was the guy sitting at the table.
1: That's that's the way it's going to work now. This is this is the rule now. This is okay. Now you've reached the, this new level in terms of your magnitude, and if you want to keep doing business and growing, you don't do your own little marginal you know hustle with local guys. You deal with the big boss. So this is where TV helps. Is you've watched so many movies where it's like the minute you deal with the mob, then you're fucked for life. They're going to keep getting in bigger and bigger, right? Not notwithstanding just the ethical <laughs> part of it. So we basically told the guy who we said, well, first of all, I was scared shitless as I should have because they really didn't give a a fuck about me. And so we, we both kind of bluffed our way out and said, well, we really appreciate that, you know, you're giving us the opportunity to deal with you, but we have to work directly with farmers because we have this certification program for fair trade, yada, yada it really sucks, but they require us to kind of have that transparency. And I wish it was different, but it's not. So we're going to have to probably um, close the company. And, and, you know, that was a nice opportunity for us, but you know, I guess it's not going to happen. So I guess we're going to stop operations altogether. And we left before he got a chance to, you know, really say much.
0: Were you like trying to communicate with him or like, like, did he understand English?
1: No, we had an interpreter. Um, and he uh, spoke perfect English, or at least business English. So he caught up with us and spoke in English to us and said, well, we'll, we'll figure out a way. And the next day we came back and it was the farmers, the families, the, the villages were, 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 were packed and um, we were back in business. So it, it was a traumatic experience, but at the same time, one of many, you know, situations where people try to get into your game, basically they're trying to get a piece of the action. Um, and don't get me wrong. It's not Thailand only you know, the U S is as bad as oh, dude, not- I
0: mean, I'll tell you a funny story. So I opened up a seafood restaurant on, uh, on the corner of Broom and Mulberry street, that restaurant turned into six restaurants in the city. And the idea behind Seymour's is I only use Local wild underutilized species of fish. I was only using predominantly whitefish and tuna whenever it swam locally. And so, about a year and a half in, I'm on the corner, and remember, I'm on I'm on Broom and Mulberry Street, right? Like I was, you know, people thought I was kind of crazy to open up a restaurant like at the mouth of Little Italy, but I was like, you know, they're like, you're going to open up a seafood restaurant in Little Italy? I was like, it's a cool part of New York City. I'm right under the little, you know, welcome to Little Italy sign. It was like, I thought it was a cool thing, especially being a New York City kid. Anyway, one day I'm sitting outside. This guy walks up to me, very TV-like character. And he goes, Mike. And I go, yeah, hey, what's going on, man? Nice to meet you. He goes, uh, where are you getting your fish? <laughs> and I'm like, I work with local fishermen up and down, you know, from from essentially from Portland, Maine. Down to, uh, you know, Baltimore. And he goes, "Uh, I'll get you fish. And I was just like, I I have these longstanding relationships and it'd be weird for me to just all of a sudden stop getting fish from somewhere else. And he goes, I'm going to drop some fish off. I'm going to drop some fish off. And so I have an old friend who I called up and I said, hey, John, the guy who came who approached me is a guy named Baby John. And I said, hey, John. Baby John from Mulberry Street approached me and said he wanted to get me fish. And John said, "Don't worry about it. I'm gonna call up Baby John." And then um, Baby John came over and said, "Hey, it's all good. Don't worry about it." But yeah, that's that stuff totally exists. I mean, is harmless. The, uh, the you know, like CPG is a, is. I'm so I'm 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 actually myself getting into CPG. Uh, my my new business is a D 2 C CPG brand that I'd love to tell you about it sometime. But um, what is it about CPG that you think, specifically, I mean, beverage is so tough. Is there a magic formula? Is there something that has to work? Is it marketing? Is it distribution? Is it brand? Is it flavor? Or is it a culmination of all those things?
1: Everyone's going to say it's a combination, but I'll tell you the story with Harmless. The, the, the story with Harmless was that to get back to the basics, we're selling something that you put in your body, right? So everything else, the, the branding, the packaging, the label, all that other shit is great and all, but it's what you're putting in your body. There's a reason why people eat foie gras, right? It's, it's literally a fat liver that's been like, you know, stuffed in a goose or a duck, and, but it's good. It tastes good. Um, so we're willing to like bypass a lot of things for something that tastes good and that we like. The idea with food is to say, well, we just got to do something that is sensorially, organoleptically, as they say, texture Taste fragrance, has to be incredibly good. You know why? Because you can call yourself an expert, but everyone who eats is an expert in food. So you're dealing with an audience of 400 million experts and they trust their senses. They don't trust what you're telling them. So that, that was the premise. I mean, for me, that's the premise for food industry, right? You gotta, you gotta work with that. The rest is gravy. If you got a better tasting product than anyone else, I don't care what, how many millions of dollars you put and you can throw every celebrity on, on every endorsement, I'll beat you. And that's what we did with Harmless. It was about technology. And the idea with our technology was to try to not alter the original flavor, not trying to improve it, but just not change it. And, and not changing something from the way it started is very, very, very fucking hard. And we went through a lot of pain to create this application of pressure instead of heat. And that was our, our, our win was really tech, tech and industry. Manufact- Can you
0: explain the difference between HPP and temperature?
1: Thermal pasteurization, basically, you got two types. It's either lower temperature or it's like canning industry or it's what people like to call flash pasteurization, which is a bullshit word. But basically, you're heating, you're nuking something super hard. with tech. It kills everything, basically. It also modifies the um, physical chemical structure of the product, which is why it tastes like shit. In the case of HPP, you're using pressure. So you after you filled your product, so post manufacturing, so let's let's assume this is the bottle. After I've filled my product, I put it in in this container that goes into this machine that fills up with water and I build pressure. It's like a hyperbaric chamber, right? I build pressure, pressure, pressure. And since it's floating in water, it's isostatic pressure. So it's the same amount of pressure on every part of the bottle, so it doesn't crush. Now by tweaking the levels of pressure in our case, I think it was 87,500 pounds of pressure per square inch. And the whole time you'll destroy the cell walls of the microorganisms you wanna get rid of, which are large organisms, pathogens basically. And you'll maintain the integrity of the physicochemical structure. So you're gonna extend the shelf life, you're gonna get rid of pathogens and your product's gonna taste exactly the same from when it went in and when it went out, which is crazy. That's the theory. Of it. The practical reality of it is that you have to come up with a lot of complex approaches for how you're bottling your product, the, the, the type of plastics you're using for the elasticity of the material, the hold times, the managing of the thawing and dethawing because it's, it's endless, an endless mess. Um, now it's a multi-multi-billion dollar industry, which I'm happy I was a pioneer of, but um, it, it really shows you that a tech improvement can change a product radically. The reason nobody did it was that it was expensive. You know, it could be done. Coke and Pepsi could do it. Nothing crazy, but it was just too expensive. And the idea was that if they introduced a product that was HPP, they would beat their own brands, right? Then they'd all have to change to that and their margin would get screwed, I think. So we we killed it. And then a lot of HPP brands came out and it became kind of a free for all. Uh, We stuck to our guns, which was low acid, which is a very particular space within the world of beverages, which is the hardest part basically like milk and dairy products, which are very difficult to work with, which includes seafood, actually. And that's where we killed it because it's very, very challenging to work with that type of product. And then we shifted pretty rapidly to another technology where we borrowed from the drug industry, you know, how vaccines stay active, but are um, um, the virus is actually dead. Um, so you're able to denature something and maintain its... DNA structure so that the antibodies react to it. Right, so we used the, the, this concept of X, the microfiltration and membrane filtration that we reapplied to food and beverage about five years after, which is how we suddenly boosted our, our shelf life and, and expanded the business. So the, the the win on CPG here was purely R and D tech and thinking really hard and trying to really be uh, aggressive in our approach. Um, it's the same with the salmon, you know. There is no industry for utilizing collagen, fat rich, you know, seafood skin at scale to turn it into a chip. It's like it's a hell. It's hell. Um, and nobody wants to touch it. But it's 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 a gold mine for me. And it's got such positive answers. So to, to make the answer short on the food bev world, CPG in general, you're when you're talking about fast moving consumer goods, uh, you're talking about personal care and food, I would say generally food, Bev, you're you're talking about something that's extremely intimate. You're giving stuff that someone's gonna put in their body or on their face or on their, you know, on their ass. This is about as close as it gets. You're, you're ripping open the packaging. It's what's inside that matters. So it's not apparel. It's, it's, it's not any other soft good. It's really about the actual functional um, and sensorial experience of the product outside of the packaging, outside of the brand. So that's where I'm focused I think branding is over, um, to put it mildly. Goodfish is already doing north of $3, 4000000 million run rate in D2C. Browse Sierra is a fucking hit. I mean, that business has been blowing up. We have uh, we we have a quarter million followers on our brand uh, in a year. It's a, It just launched a target and it's blowing up because the D2C pickup was huge. The reason for, for those successes, I think, is the beauty of, of, of I'd say, social media and direct-to-consumer is affinity-driven development. So we don't really build products and then push them to an audience that we've created. We actually build products with the audience. We identify the audience and then we work with them and figure out what they want. Like Good Fish, we're launching the new iteration of the product in about a month or so. That's the outcome of eight months of people telling us what they don't like and what they do like. So anybody who's in the D to C game today has to understand that they will never have a finished product. They have to go to market with a non-finished product And they have to build a relationship with their audience, which is, I'm building this with you. I know it's not perfect. Like, I'm not selling you perfection because that was the name of the game 20 years ago. I'm selling you something, an idea. Here's what it looks like now. Buy it, try it, tell me what you think. You could hate it and then help me get it better and we'll figure it out. Good Fish is a perfect example. Bravo Sierra, the whole model is called Battalion. So we're launching a performance nutrition brand in a couple months. We already did two drops of that product. It's an energy drink called Echelon.
0: I love that drink, by the way. I love the little can too.
1: That thing is crazy, man. So this, this basically we, we borrowed from the culture of rip it and and deployment, you know, service members drink a lot of rip rip fuel. And we were like, how can we do a better version of that? Yada, yada. So we, we teamed up with the folks that started muscle milk and we started iterating product with them directly. And then we started doing drops with our Brava Sierra customers to see what they thought. Well, first of all, it sold out three hours, the first drop, 27 minutes, the second drop. So, you know, it's the beauty of D2C is you've got a built-in audience when you have a pre existing brand. And we've made so many tweaks. And even the product I'm dropping in June is versionized. It's actually called version two point something, whatever the iteration it is. So there is no more finished product is what I mean. It's you got to take, I was talking to these folks, I think from Chanel, this lady, and I was telling her the story of like there is no finished product. She's like, it's so funny. Our whole, vision of business is we do the perfect final product for that customer and you're telling me that finished product is finished we all it's software product cpg is software now it's versioning beta tests audiences and you keep improving and you have a new version of the same thing coming in every 6 months and as a consumer you're just getting the you're just updating your software you're updating your cpg game and you pick your brands that that's how i see it
0: Having someone like you on here, it it just makes sense to dig into this industry a bit, right? Because everybody is a consumer. Most people these days are consumers via D2C, and nobody really knows much about it outside of they get an ad on Instagram or Facebook and they like what they see and they have no idea that they've been targeted. Um, no, meaning like the, 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 the network knows that they're going to like what they see um, and then they buy it and then they get it. Um, what is a go-to-market strategy?
1: First thing is m- most of the stuff needed to go to market, you can do yourself or you can do it on the very cheap with a couple of folks around you. Um, there is no um, advantage to having more resources. Actually, I think it's a disadvantage. If you have raised a half a million dollars and you're getting an agency to do this, an agency to do that, you, you're going to blow your cash. You're probably going to learn less. I think the go-to-market with D2C is to try to identify your affinity community. And if your affinity community is not you, then you're fucked because you're trying to preach to an audience that is uh, foreign to you. So uh, whatever product or business you're building, um, you need to be your number one customer and understand what you're trying to get out of it because you can speak the language. Identifying that community is actually not that hard because everybody wants to make a buck on the internet. Everybody wants to live on a social expression of themselves on a digital way. But you can pretty easily, pretty rapidly gather a couple hundred folks to be part of that seed group. And you essentially, if I were to do this now, I would grow that little group and really make them my, not my partners, but I'd say my brothers in arms, thinking through the brand and getting their feedback. People are happy to participate. Most of my prescribers are just people that want to be able to say they work with us, right? They're part of it. It resonates well. When you're, when you have very few followers... You're in the ask position now, brother Sierra, you know, people are just happy to say that they're working with us because we're, we're becoming pretty respected. Um, so I would go for affinity first, tiny nano little groups, look at what the reactions are from that group. It's the beauty of the live audience, right? It's like at L'Oreal, we never had that. We'd spend millions on testing without even knowing at the end if that's it's, it's going to work in the shelf. And then from there, I would I would be very aggressive in launching the most artisanal product. You don't need to wait a year just launch whatever you got, put it out there. Um, something that you're comfortable with. And yes, you're going to pack the boxes yourself and you might have to put dry ice that you go buy it, whatever. It's going to be grimy and yucky, but that's what makes you valuable is that you are the asymmetric David versus Goliath thing is that you're nimble and quick and you're authentic and credible where the other big brand is um, you know, obviously a very different thing. Also, the beauty of DTC is that it's person to person. It's peer to peer leverage that you don't want to pretend to be a big thing when you're not, you're not, you're not big, you're small, be small and enjoy email the freaking guy, DM the guy that said he hates your product. And like, wait, you're the founder and owner. You're like, Yeah, I am. I'm a real person. There is no corporate entity. There is no system. When you're calling customer service, you're texting my cell phone, bro. So that, that is something that you got to leverage when you can, while you can, it's your biggest asset. It's the gorilla value of what you have. Only before guerrilla marketing was pretty rough to do. But with D2C, you're suddenly you're, the value of your Instagram ad versus Cokes are the same. It's the same amount of real estate at the same time in front of the same person. So once you get that traction, I think the trick is to get your business to that two to three million dollar run rate with that core group. And then then, then the real problem comes because everybody in D2C, from my perspective, Preaching to the choir, catering to your community happens, takes about a year or two years, and then you get those numbers and you're like, yeah, I'm grooving. I was able to go to from zero to one million or zero to five million. The sky's the limit. The big problem is, and this is the one I keep telling all these entrepreneurs that I'm have invested in or whatever, is once you've reached that five, that whatever, that first glass ceiling in your audience, now you gotta start selling your product to people that don't care about you, don't like you, don't wanna know you. And that's a whole different ballgame, and that's where your product needs to speak for itself. so that first window of time is for you to refine and create that product for that second group, which is the mass. and then then you have a story, then you have a narrative. so that, that would be my, my strategy. I think today you could build a good D2C brand for about a hundred thousand dollars, notwithstanding you know living expenses of the founders, but for 100 grand, you could go to market with something, even if it means going to the farmer's market and picking up tomatoes and making tomato sauce, or hopefully buying shit tomatoes from the back of the truck of the tomato guy and throwing your thing on, on, online with very little money and get enough of a learning to see if it's worth pursuing. And for that, you got to assume that everything you're going to do for that year is not going to be the final product, final brand, final story. You got to accept that volatility and, and variation. That That would be my goal for, for the guys like you and I, they're like, let's just fucking do it. D 2 C is the dream. Now the problem with D 2 C is that it is not the end. It, it, you can like gloss has done super well. has done super well staying D 2 C only to a certain level. And that's really community driven business, but you also have to figure out how you're going to generate mass, how you're going to generate scale. Mostly if you've got a high volume, low
0: price product. I love that. Thank you very much for that breakdown. Um, Happiness. What is, what does that mean?
1: Well, it, it's changed a little bit since I've had kids. Interestingly, it's simplified the whole thing. Uh, from my perspective, ever since I became a dad, um, I just became a, um, best supporting actor, you know, more than, uh, the main guy in my movie. Um, so happiness now is to figure out how to, uh, make this family, uh, thrive and, I think the, the trick for me was to feel like I'm, I'm, I, there's a sense of accomplishment in what I do professionally that is seamless with how my family lives and how my children see me and what they, their experience of life. So everything that I do business-wise, I need to be able to explain it to my five-year-old in a way that she looks at me and real, understands, well, first of all, what the fuck I'm doing and B. Thinks it's awesome and inspiring and a good thing, right? Um, so happiness is um, making my children happy and my wife, um, and that requires me to have a very limited, you know, scope in terms of what I do with my time. Um, so happiness is is exactly that. It's this continuous process of flurry of activity, personal and professional, which is completely blended. My best friends are my founders, right? Douglas is one of my best buddies. I've done good fish and harmless with him. Benjamin's one of my best friends. I've done Brava Sierra now echelon with him. A lot of my buddies are investors, stakeholders. We're all, so having that, that very rare ecosystem of friendship, family, and even my, my family's involved in my businesses. Um, and, um, and business is pretty rare. And that's, that's happiness for me. Um, it's this, uh, ability, I would say to, um, not think of the life as a five day week and a weekend, not think of it as a nine to five. And sure, it's exhausting and I'm working all the time and everybody's like, we've never taken a vacation in 12 years. To be honest, like, I don't, I don't care really about vacation stuff. It's, it's always seamless. Like, you know, I don't know, you're, you're making me emotional here, but happiness is building the life you want for yourself, you know? however it works. And I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm actually, you're talking to me at a point in my life where I've rarely been more happy. Um, and it's funny that it's kind of like my idea of love, my idea of happiness and love when I was younger, was this high octane, high intensity, high, you know, uh, sensoriality experience and really happiness and love are these slow burn, very, very um, comforting, very strong feelings that endure. And that, that's where I'm at now.
0: Do you think, um, COVID has had something to do with your level of happiness.
1: I'm going to sound like an asshole, but it's turned me inwards and inwards. My life is good. I had, I have wife and kids and obviously business wise. I have, there was a lot of opportunity for us to kind of grow in that time. Um, Yeah. I think just spending the last 16 months at home, I'm, I'm not looking forward to traveling as much as I used to. Um, I am super happy that the new office culture is there is no office because I I haven't really had an office for 10 years, even though there's offices for the companies I run. They've always been kind of these empty desks that I show up to from time to time since the beginning. So this is fortunate for me that it's changing the way we work. It's not possible for everyone, but for those who are going to offices, um, this is a blessing if that's going to be a structural change. At least, you know, part time office, part time home, getting more time at home with your kids the dream.
0: For me, it's incredible. Having dinner with my kids every night is like amazing.
1: As a guy who was in hospitality restaurant, I mean, talk about the most fucked up hours in the world. Good for you. And I think a lot of people are seeing it that way and all the wishwash about self-care and yada, yada, you know, and people are like, well, no, you got to hurt. You got to be in pain to succeed for some reason. Like not really, actually, you can, you can actually have a pretty nice life and work really, really hard. And it doesn't need to be painful. My mom got me this Tiffany keychain when I was 16 for my birthday. Silver keychain with this engraved "No pain, no gain," which is obviously you know one of America's favorite mantras. And I have it, man. I'm like, no, you got it wrong, man. That's not true. You no, know, you don't have to be in pain. You gotta suffer from and 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 learn how to acknowledge the experience of life and grow from it. But you don't need to suffer to succeed. That's not. It's not
0: true. I don't believe it. You know, I think something that I've learned over the years is the ego tends to be the biggest hurdle. I've been confronted by ego more times than not. That's my arch nemesis. You know, it's not the the hours. It's not the amount of time you've spent. It's it's the self-awareness and the humility to be like, whatever this is that's happening, this, this fucking confrontation I'm dealing with, with this, this thing that's self-made, that's the bump in my road. And, and, it and, the, and that voice has gotten so much quieter over the last few years. Um, you know, uh, and that's funny how we started the conversation, right? Like we're both fucking idiots that just jump off the cliff into the, <laughs> into the patch of jellyfish. <laughs> um, <Exactly. laughs> um, So I guess the only other question that I I wanted to ask you was this idea of habits. I believe habits um, are everything. I really do. I believe habits make us or break us or both. Do you have any routines or any habits that you've stuck to um, consistently over time that you can draw back to some success in your life or something that potentially makes you who you are today?
1: Call it intellectual exercise, right? Intellectual workouts which is, I think, critical for anyone, but basically learning about stuff that has absolutely no purpose. That's something that's always been common thread over the years. Reading or whatever it may be, but it has no practical application to my life. Reading medieval poetry for six months you know, every day, nothing useful, not even that entertaining, to be honest. It's a mental vacation, it's not family. It's not my culture. It's not what's happening now. It's not feeding my thoughts about what I want to do or what I should be doing. It's got no real application in my life and incredibly um, fertile um, because it's going to drive thinking in a very different way. Um, and I, and that's, that's my habit. That's my number one habit. The other habit I have, which just started a few years ago, is um, I like cars. so I have a, a couple of convertibles, but I drive my convertible, rain or shine, cold, wherever it was. I was in Long Island before. I didn't change my, my MO, but I try to take a drive every day alone for about 15, 20 minutes. Here, I'm very lucky. I'm, on, I'm on near PCH, so I just go Pacific Coast Highway. I just do that, even if it's to go pick up a burritos for the family. But it's my, um, my top-down, blast the wind, no music. No thinking, no phone, no online, nothing. I can't connect. I got to look at the road. I can't talk because it's the top is down and I'm suddenly getting a blast of the universe in my face. And it seems like a really silly thing and it's basic, but it does. um, It's a habit that really works well. And a date with my wife one-on-one with a babysitter once a week.
0: That's a habit. So you get a babysitter and you guys have a date night.
1: Yes. We have one babysitter who comes every week. It's, it's obligatory and whether we're, we feel like we need it or not. And she comes every Friday or Saturday and we are uh, without kids for a few hours every week. And I think it's the best thing, best decisions we ever made to do that. I started a couple of
0: years ago. We do the same, but we unfortunately have had stretches through the pandemic where before pandemic it was re- religious Thursday nights, like clockwork. It's a great habit. I also really love the driving in your drop top for 15, 20 minutes and really getting blasted by the universe. Like I could, that just feels so invigorating and so like freedom provoking. Um, I do a walk every day at four thirty, where I try my best not to schedule calls or anything, but if I have to do a call, I'll take a call on my walk, but I do this four mile loop. Not that I didn't know the impact of nature, but like I' never exposed myself in the real in a real way on a consistent basis to nature. so when I first started doing this walk like a year ago when we first came up here, I didn't even look up and then one day it was starting to snow, and I looked up and I was like, "Holy shit!" and then it changed, and that universal sort of like like I genuinely feel when I'm out there walking every day now that is my conscious contact with the universe man. It's like this like I do it no matter what. it could be pouring rain, sleet, fucking this was the worst winter ever like 40 below zero I'm out there in my you know onesie snowsuit getting after it.
1: Getting out of the habit would be misery. you can't you can't move back to the city man you're
0: screwed well no I was down in the city I was down in the city the last few days and, and I've, I've, I've like walked 25,000 steps I walked. I normally get around the city on a motorcycle I'm like a motorcycle guy and I was like yeah I'm not taking the bike out I'm gonna walk everywhere my motorcycle days are numbered um, this was so much fun man I can't tell you how much I appreciate you hopping in and uh, I always finish with 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 the question of whether you think you were born or made what do you think?
1: I think I was born. I think I was born. I'll tell you why. I got two daughters so distinctly different in terms of personality. It freaks me out. I've got one sister who's a painter. She's an artist. She has the same background as me. There's no reason why she'd be different from the nurture side. The big process is for those of us who have that mix of things, we're going to be unhappy and frustrated in everything we do until we reach, we find that outlet. So, you know, if there's a message to give to entrepreneurs, 90% of the ones who think they are are probably not, but they have to maybe try to realize that the ones that are, most of them don't realize that that's their outlet. They're in the wrong spot. They might be unhappy and frustrated with their lives, but maybe that's because they haven't found that the outlet for them is to build their own things and grow their own things. And that's their DNA.
0: That was my interview with the one, the only Justin Gilbert, founder of Harmless Harvest, Bravo Sierra, good fish. That guy is a real legend. He's, he's, he's one of these creative geniuses that you just know when you start talking to him, laid back, calm, cool, collected. But when he gets going on the things he's passionate about, he's like a real scientist and he is able to dissect and analyze and really understand. He understands how to take something from nothing to incredible um he's done it a number of times and i can't wait to stay in touch with him because he is just one of those guys that you know is a positive force Uh, The impact that he makes is big. So if anybody out there is an entrepreneur already or looking to be an entrepreneur and interested in the world of consumer packaged goods, predominantly or, or especially DTC, this conversation absolutely applies to you. And listen, if you like this podcast, do me a massive favor. I'm asking you for a huge favor. Share it with your friends. Please share this podcast with your friends. And if you really, really, really want to help me, you can go onto Apple Podcasts and write a review and give me a five-star rating. It would mean the world. That is how we grow this bad boy. I love you guys. Thank you so much. As always, peace. See you on the next one.